0: Hey podcast family, it's time for another podcast. Listen, I know I've been kind of MIA for, well, I guess about a month, and I really appreciate the messages that were sent to our Facebook page. One, making sure I was alive somewhere, and not somewhere in some ditch, and second, to make sure the podcast is still active. It is definitely still active. It's just that during the last month, I've been working on two different manuscripts with either a medical student or a resident. And then last week, for example, in Texas, we had this weird freaky ice storm that shut down the the entire state, all to say it's been kind of nuts. Yet medical education continues. So in this podcast, we're going to cover an article from March of 2021. Yep, coming up next month. And it's also part of the ABOG, the American Board of OBGYN, maintenance of certification list. And it's very timely as we talk about the coronavirus vaccine. And with J&J's new vaccine approval set to happen soon, I think we need to address this in how it regards or how it relates to pregnancy. So we're going to talk about the coronavirus vaccine and pregnancy. And I know what you're thinking. I already know all that stuff. Yes, you can get it. But it's deeper than that. Like, how does it actually work? Are all the vaccines the same? What are the efficacies? And what's this whole issue with Tylenol or Motrin, if you're early in pregnancy, to prevent some of the myalgias that the injection can give you? Well, we're going to talk about that because that actually is a point that's relatively new. This use of antipredicts for prophylaxis may not be as wise as we think. Here we go. Well, if you can believe it, we're just over a year of this COVID fiasco. I mean, COVID pandemic. And right now, there are six leading vaccine candidates that have received some form of federal government support through Operation Warp Speed. Now, right now, two vaccines are approved, one from Pfizer and one from Moderna. But J&J's single vaccine injection is set for approval soon. The first to be approved was a Pfizer vaccine on December 12, 2020, and it was approved for individuals aged 16 years of age and older. Moderna followed the subsequent week, but it started at an age of 18 years old for eligibility. Now remember that there are six vaccine candidates and they are not all the same. The first two that have been released are the messenger RNA-based vaccine candidates. Two others are based on viral vectors, and two are actually recombinant proteins manufactured in a baculovirus. Now, you got to go back to micro to remember what the heck that was. A baculovirus is a DNA virus that infects insect cells and that are formulated with adjuvants. Now, a quick review of what EUA means. Remember, that stands for Emergency Use Authorization, and we hear those three letters, EUA, frequently on the news. That is a parallel pathway to traditional FDA approval of medications or vaccines, and traditionally was thought to be a little bit more loosey-goosey or not as stringent. However, because of the nature of what we're dealing with, the FDA did kind of tighten up the EUA process specifically for these coronavirus vaccines. This EUA process is still pretty rigorous and goes through different levels of check. The first check is by the Data and Safety Monitoring Board to make sure that there's no weird events going on. Then it goes to review by the FDA scientists and by the Review of Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee. That's an independent advisory committee to the FDA. Now, after the FDA reviews this, then they can issue the EUA authorization. After the FDA's issuance of the EUA, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice, or the ACIP, which is an independent advisory committee to the CDC, reviews the EUA and provides recommendations for populations to be vaccinated. All right, that was kind of boring, but now let's get into how these mRNA vaccines actually work. Now I want to concentrate on these because these are the ones that are out right now. Well, once the vaccine is injected into muscle cells, they manufacture the spike protein that is then recognized by the immune system. The mRNA actually never enters the cell's nucleus, so it's never integrated into DNA. And within hours, days, the mRNA is actually degraded in the cell cytoplasm. The vaccines developed by AstraZeneca and Janssen, Johnson & Johnson actually use a modified viral vector to deliver the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 into cells, unlike the Pfizer and Moderna. This then triggers the immune response. Now, a quick word about adenoviruses. The AstraZeneca vaccine uses a chimpanzee adenovirus that has been modified so it's unable to replicate, whereas the Janssen, Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses a human adenovirus that has also been modified to be non-replicating. All right, now here's a little pearl as you do your maintenance of certification. In 2018, the FDA published draft guidance that provided a framework for consideration of inclusion of pregnant women in clinical trials. Remember, we said 2018, way before this whole pandemic thing really hit the fan. Also in 2018, the Task Force on Research Specific to Pregnant Women... And lactating women, which is a federal group established to advise the Secretary of Health and Human Services, recognized that, quote, inclusion of pregnant women and lactating women in clinical trials is essential unless there are compelling scientific reasons for their exclusion, end quote. All to say, it's been about two, now going on three years that the FDA has actually pushed an endorsement of inclusion of pregnant women in these clinical trials. Of course, Moderna and Pfizer vaccine did not include any pregnant women. However, it was just released that pregnant women up to 4,000 are now being recruited for a COVID-19 study. So, although there were no pregnant women included in these trials, hopefully this trial of these 4,000 pregnant women and the vaccine will give new information as to its efficacy, although there's no reason to suspect it wouldn't be efficacious, and of course provide more data on side effects. Now, we do have some information regarding side effects, which is extrapolation from Moderna. According to the review panel that looked at the briefing documents from the Moderna vaccine, a combined developmental and perinatal and postnatal study was conducted in rats and showed no adverse effects on female reproduction, fetal or embryo development, or postnatal development. Now, you can look at that two ways. That's kind of reassuring. At least we have some evidence on an animal model. And second, people are not rats. But nonetheless, at least Moderna did take a look at this developmental and perinatal and postnatal study, but it wasn't rats. Well, to be honest, it's not the vaccine itself that's the fear during pregnancy, but it's the immune response to that vaccine that is causing people some concern because it is pretty reactive. It's that reactogenesis that people are uneasy with in pregnancy. Right now, there is very little information currently available on the safety and the efficacy in pregnancy. But as of November the 14th, Pfizer reported that there were about 23 pregnant women Inadvertently enrolled in their clinical trial, including 12 in the vaccine group, these pregnancies are still ongoing. Moderna has reported 13 pregnancies in their clinical trial, including 6 in the vaccine group and 7 in the placebo group. The pregnancies exposed to the vaccines are still ongoing. Now, remember that both ACOG and SMFM have endorsed the vaccine in pregnancy despite the limited data because COVID-19 in pregnancy is just overall worse than in the non-pregnant individual. The vast majority of vaccines are allowed during pregnancy when the benefits of the vaccine is deemed to outweigh any potential risk. Now, unfortunately, there's just not a lot of experience with pregnant women that's available or that we can look at for mRNA vaccines. And again, that's a type of vaccine that was first available in the U.S., However, there is no reason to expect that mRNA vaccines will work any differently in pregnant women than in other adults. Here's another clinical pearl for the maintenance of certification, and you're welcome. So here's the question, and here's the answer, about the Pfizer effectiveness. So how effective is the Pfizer vaccine, based on the clinical trial? Well, the effectiveness of the COVID-19 Pfizer vaccine is 95%. Moderna is really not much different at 94.5%. Now, the original data based on the AstraZeneca trial showed an efficacy of only about 70.4%. And Jane and js information will come out soon because that's being reviewed right now. But again, remember 95% for Pfizer, and that's the key one to remember, although Moderna is a little bit less at 94.5% effective. All right, guys, so here's the issue about this reactive nature of these vaccines and their potential pregnancy tie-in. And remember, initially, it was thought that you could take Motrin before the second dose of the vaccine to reduce some of that reactive flare, that kind of immune response that makes you feel kind of crappy. But there is some data that use of these NSAIDs or antipyretics may blunt the immune response. So let's get into that now. Remember that the Pfizer vaccine actually showed that about 3.7% of participants complained of this systemic fever and muscle aches and chills after the first vaccine, but it went up to 158 after the second dose of the vaccine. Now, the risks associated with this fever appear to be lower with antipyretic medication. Well, what risks with fever? remember that in the first trimester, maternal fever has been linked to certain kinds of birth defects, although the overall numbers are still pretty small. But that's where this kind of ad hoc consensus opinion of trying to avoid the vaccine in the first trimester came from. Judicious use of antipyretic medication, judicious, not liberal, after vaccination is recommended in order to try to reduce fever exposure in pregnancy. However, there's been some concerns raised about acetaminophen use during pregnancy, even though those original studies that showed a possible link of harm with neurodevelopmental disorders, yep, for Tylenol, were in women who used Tylenol chronically excessively over a period more than a month in pregnancy. So here it is. ACOG states that because these concerns regarding whether antipyretic medications would actually decrease vaccine efficiency, it's recommended to use these antipyretics like Tylenol and the ACIP agrees that these should be used for treatment of these symptoms after vaccination rather than prophylaxis. Now, let me tell you, Before my second dose of vaccine, I took 600 milligrams of Motrin because I didn't want to feel bad and I still had to work. Well, then of course this comes out that it may blunt the immune response. Well, that's just great. Now, based on what is known about how mRNA vaccines act locally and how rapidly they're degraded and removed by the lymphatic system, the likelihood of a vaccine reaching and crossing the placenta is believed to be very low. So let's do that as a clinical pearl. Because you can feel crappy after the first or more likely the second dose of the vaccine, it's okay to use Tylenol, but use it judiciously in pregnancy and use it only for treatment rather than prophylaxis before the vaccine. All right, team, we're getting to the end. So how do we counsel Pregnant women about this COVID 19 vaccine. I mean, what do we tell people? Well, current data suggests that pregnant women are more likely to be admitted to an intensive care unit, to require invasive ventilation, to receive ECMO, and even to die than non pregnant women of reproductive age. The effects on the fetus are not completely understood. Intrauterine transmission of the virus can occur, but it appears to be rare data suggests that neonates born to persons with SARS-CoV-2 infection may be more likely to also be born prematurely. Now, given the vaccine's reactogenicity, remember, that's the ability for it to give you those myalgias and low-grade fever, vaccination in the first trimester could potentially increase the risk of neural tube and other congenital defects, not because of the vaccine itself, but again, because of the immune response and the fever. So, part of the counseling is to try to avoid the vaccine in the first trimester. Now again, there's not a lot of data for that. That's just kind of consensus opinion. In addition, exposures earlier in pregnancy are more likely to cause adverse outcomes. However, the risk of vaccine reactogenicity on the pregnant person and the fetus needs to be weighed against the risk of actual COVID-19 infection. All right, podcast family, we're at the end, so let's do some rapid-fire counseling points to remember when talking to pregnant women about the COVID-19 vaccine. One, we have to acknowledge that there is lack of data right now on the COVID-19 vaccine and pregnancy, but hopefully that will change soon. Next, is that the risk of COVID-19 itself in pregnancy is much greater than when compared to the non-pregnant population. The risk of COVID-19 to the fetus is actually low in terms of intrauterine transmission, but preterm birth does seem to be increased if the mother has severe or even moderate COVID-19 infection. And lastly, if the patient is at risk of exposure to SARS-CoV-2 and is just unsure about vaccination, then there's things that can mitigate or reduce the risk of acquiring the infection, like working from home, wearing masks, and physical or social distancing. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the current commentary from the college from March 2021, which is also part of the first quarter maintenance of certification list for ABOG, thanks for being part of our podcast family. Thanks for checking up on me during my brief hiatus as I took care of other things that had to be done, but now we're back in full strength. So have a great rest of the week, be safe, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.